Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. The Andrew Lawton Show here, Canada's most irreverent talk show. The end of another week, at least insofar as this program is concerned. But fear not, True North has you covered. And I'll just put in a, a bit of a plug before we get into what's turned out to be a rather busy show. True North Nation is taking place in, what is it? It's next Saturday, so I guess that's nine days away in Calgary. So if you are from Calgary or Alberta or anywhere in the country, or the world, in fact, and want to come on by. Uh, I will be there. Premier Danielle Smith will be there. Brett uh, Wilson, the star of Dragon's Den, uh, is going to be there. Lots of your uh, favorites at True North will also be there. MP Stephanie Cusey, we've got... I, the problem when I start naming like everyone is that I'm bound to just miss someone. So I'm not doing that intentionally. I'll stop naming right now, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And we have... Well, I, I don't want to oversell it, but we have a little surprise. Well, it's a big surprise. Like, it's a big, physically large surprise, which is not me. I'm not referring to myself. I, You know that I'm there. I'm the physically large non-surprise. Non but it's going to be great fun, and we still have some tickets available. I think we're getting close to that sellout point, but I do hope to see you all there. You can find the details at truenorthevents.ca. Uh, but all of that aside, let me talk about uh, this big hearing that was taking place yesterday before the Federal Court of Appeal. Now, this is, I don't want to get too bogged down in the legal ins and outs here, but the Federal Court of Appeal heard a four-hour-long argument uh, back and forth between government lawyers and lawyers for people challenging the vaccine mandate for air travel. Now, this may seem like a bit of a distant memory right now because it has been a couple of years since this was first floated. It was something that Justin Trudeau promised in the 2021 election. Remember this? You deserve a government that's going to continue to say, get vaccinated. And you know what? If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But don't think you can get on a plane or a train besides vaccinated people and put them at risk. Yeah, he didn't just advocate for this policy or implement it. Justin Trudeau campaigned on this. He actually went to voters and said, I would like to bar the unvaccinated from planes and trains and federally regulated workplaces. You couldn't work as a bureaucrat in the federal department of widgets unless you were vaccinated against COVID. That was obviously a winning proposition. Justin Trudeau emerged victorious in that election and proceeded with the policy and later the even more punitive policy of requiring vaccination from truckers to cross the border back and forth between Canada and the United States. But one of the things that I will point out about this is that the federal government had these mandates, they escalated them, they did them in spite of scientific evidence and data arguing against them. Science and data saying that these things were not actually necessary, were not keeping people out of the hospital, were not saving lives, but the federal government persisted anyway. So there was a, a challenge put forward by a number of different people. Uh, one of them was former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford. One of them was the leader of the People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier. Uh, now Bernier in particular had a very interesting approach to this. His case was not just, I'm a Canadian that wants to go and see grandma, he was saying, listen, I'm a federal politician. Part of my job is to crisscross the country 
and speak to Canadians. This law is preventing me from doing something that is fundamental to democracy and to the democratic process. So that was the argument that was put forward. Now, the legal process is very slow at times. It took some time for this case to go before the federal court. By the time it did, the federal government had already rescinded the mandate. Now, the language they used was that it was suspended. It wasn't over. It wasn't done. They didn't say, we're sorry. We shouldn't have done this. We're never going to do it again. They said, we're suspending it and we might bring it back. And there was also another press conference where the government started talking about reworking its definition of fully vaccinated. So it might have actually been uh, the case where you had to be boosted within a certain period of time to travel. So all of that is important context to the federal government's argument that we shouldn't even have a court case on this. We shouldn't even hear this argument. It is moot, which is to say that it's not a live issue. This is what's at stake. The federal court said it's moot. There's no point in hearing this. The mandate's over. Uh, that was the discussion that went towards the federal court of appeal yesterday, which now has the decision to make about whether they should actually have a hearing on the merits of this mandate in the first place. Eva Chipiak knows this file well. She joins me now, a lawyer with Chipiak Law. Eva, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I mean, obviously, when we put the word moot in our stories, we put it in quotation marks because it's a term that has a meaning in law and I think has a reason in law, but it's one that I, I think has been very convenient for the government here because anytime they've had an issue that they don't want to really have it answered in court, they do this. And, and oftentimes with alarming success, even the Emergencies Act, the federal government has said, oh, well, I mean, the Emergencies Act is over now, nothing to see here, it's all moot. So it's not surprising they've tried that here, but it's concerning that the courts have so far gone along with it. Very much agree with you on that. And those were the arguments that, of course, the lawyers were making in court. And um, at the first instance, uh, I recall one of, I thought, the most powerful arguments that at least Keith Wilson brought forward is, what are the other options for Canadians then? Do you want to see them back in Ottawa with in a protest. This is the forum to resolve these issues and these disputes, especially issues that are this contentious and this polarized and, and political, in fact. Um, so we're seeing these battles on Twitter. Wouldn't it be a more sophisticated place to have this evidence heard and open to the public in an established forum like the court system? So public interest is a huge point on it. And so I can't see how they suggest that it's not in the public interest. So, you know, I, I think you probably saw in some of the tweets that 20,000 people were registered to watch that hearing yesterday, mm -hmm. that appeal. I don't, I doubt that that's ever happened in Canadian history before. So just on that fact alone, it shows what an, an intense amount of public interest there is. Yes. And I mean, the one thing that the lawyers have mentioned both at the federal court level and, and in the appeal hearing yesterday also was that the government's own language suggests this was just a suspension. They've not taken it off the table. They've not said, we'll never do it again. And, and that's where I think the mootness argument kind of falls flat here, because if you follow this through to its natural conclusion, Anytime the federal go government does something on a temporary basis, 
uh, they can dodge accountability because they say, well, the fact scenario is different. There's no point in having this discussion again. There's no point in litigating the old one because when we bring the new one in, it's going to be different than a live issue. And uh, it basically means that there will never be a ruling on what is really a core constitutional question. Did this violate your mobility rights as a Canadian who was not able to travel? Yeah, I was just trying to take some notes because of uh, so many things always come up, but a hundred percent. So one of the, the the government was definitely painting the picture that the suspension, the word suspension doesn't really mean anything. It was rescinded in the end because it expired. So what many Canadians actually don't know, it was an interim order um, that continuously expired every two weeks. Hmm. So if it didn't expire, they would renew it. Um, and so they're kind of like, well, it expired, so it's gone. And there's that's it, whether it's suspended or rescinded would be a more appropriate word. It's not effective in law anymore. So that means it's not law. But one of the points that was made yesterday, which I also think is very important, is because they were these were interim orders, they weren't debated in the House of Commons and in the open public forum. So a, a decision like that, maybe that's where the court should say, okay, let's let's dissect this a little bit more because when there's like a year or two of public debate and everyone can have their say on it and that, that seems more democratic, a better use of everyone's time. If that's the kind of law we were challenging, then maybe I see the point. But in this case, it was like all these uh, very reactionary um, responses on a short-term basis. Maybe that doesn't make sense. Let's just talk about these. Let's debate this as adults and as people that have questions on this. So for many reasons, that didn't really make sense. Uh, and so those were some of the points that were made yesterday. And uh, one thing that's very important to note is on the first instance, the federal court judge said, well, you know, it's not live. It's not an active law now. But if it is, you're welcome to come back to court. This is after all the parties have put in a lot of time and effort and Canadians have either donated um, through uh, charitable organizations that were involved in this or directly. So you're just asking citizens and Canadians to continuously front a challenge to the government. I, like, I don't think that's the appropriate use of anyone's time or funds or sh Canadians should be asked of that anyway. Well, and, and I would also jump on that point, because I think that's an important one, Eva, which is that one of the core arguments behind courts using mootness and finding mootness is that uh, judicial resources are scarce. There's a, a cost and an effort and a, a time that it takes to litigate a case. I would argue that hearing the case once and for all actually takes fewer judicial resources than hearing it every year or every two years or every three years yeah. if something like this is reintroduced. I mean, we are a legal system that is based on precedent and you can't actually have uh, common law unless you hear the cases that are going to form the precedent for how the law is in the future. The mental gymnastics, Andrew, have been interesting because what the courts uh, at the first instance said and then the questions from the court judges yesterday were similar, uh, or at least one was, is, well, the science at that time was what it was. So how can we, if even if we address it now, if this comes back in a year or two, the science is going to be different. So this is going to be a waste of everybody's time. And that goes against exactly what you were saying. The rule of law precedence in Canada, it's always fact specific. Facts are going to 
always um, massage a case a little bit one way or the other. But the reasoning behind it, that's the reason that everyone's in court, was the reasoning behind the government's decisions and the mandates, even whether the interim orders make sense or whatever. None of that is being discussed or debated. Of course, the science is going to be different. Probably we'll be all be more knowledgeable if this ever came forward again. But it's not on the scientific points only that the court is being asked to hear this case. So it was very concerning to hear that in the first instance and then again yesterday. I, I've told this story on the show many, many times. So bear with me if you're one of the members of the audience that have heard it. But in, in 2019, when the Leaders Debates Commission barred True North and Rebel from covering the debate, we went to federal court. We secured an injunction and we were able to go and cover the debate. And then after the debate, we wanted to proceed with the case because we thought there was a big problem here of a government body arbitrarily deciding which journalists can and can't have access to government run events. And the court said, as it did in the vaccine mandate case, well, the debate's over. You got what you wanted. There's really no point in hearing this. Because there's uh, never going to be another debate. Yeah. And then you fast forward to 2021, literally the identical thing happens. In this case, not with us. We were accredited, but Rebel uh, experienced the same thing. And they went before the court and the same government said, this is mood. It's it's kind of an academic point. It doesn't really matter. Did the same thing. And they started from zero again. So I, yeah. I think that, you know, there there is a very real uh, debate to be had here again. I mean, if they have a trial on the facts and on the merits, it may not go the way that Mr. Peckford and Mr. Bernier and all of them want it to. But at the very least, they should be heard and, and the, the government should be forced to defend the constitutionality of this, which right now it hasn't been forced to do, has it? Yeah, no. And your example is a perfect highlight of judicial economy, mm -hmm. um, how it doesn't make sense to bring this to court again. And especially when so many resources were spent already um, with all the parties, um, three months, like it, at least it was months and months of already since the since the case was started but it was at least two months of daily cross examinations which is a massive endeavor and so the actual court case was scheduled for three days that's not a huge amount of time considering the huge issues at stake and like i said um the public interest the polarity all of that stuff i think it was three maybe five days um but to ask all the parties to just start all over again and then maybe we'll listen to it but then why wouldn't we be in the same position again then why wouldn't the court make the same arguments again yeah very very well said your uh, coverage of this on twitter has been uh, quite good not just for people in who know the law but uh, i'd say especially for people that aren't lawyers you've explained the issues very well eva chibiak always a pleasure thanks for coming on today thanks for having me all right. Thank you so much. It's funny when I talk about these issues, which were, I mean, the dominant issues in the Canadian political landscape for uh, the better part of three years, they do seem like relics of a bygone era. And I think they are. And I think it's a good thing that mandates are now just seen as so distant and so past and so old that we're not going to bring them back. Uh, the government of Alberta yesterday, I got a bit nervous because I saw a headline that it was uh, reimposing masking restrictions in healthcare environments. But then you look at the fine print and you realize they're really just saying, yeah, but any individual hospital can come up with its own policy and override what was sort of a baseline that Alberta Health Services was putting forward. Now, whether they should have done it at all is something that you can discuss and debate. But the whole point is, is that we cannot allow 
uh, the very unscientific way government approached these things to stand without being challenged. And this is why I've been a, a proponent of an inquiry. And this is not to besmirch the, the work that people involved with the National Citizens Inquiry are doing, but the uh, final product, the final report will really have no basis in law, will not be a matter of the public record in terms of the government's uh, approach to this. So I, I think we do need to have these discussions still. Kenneth Green has done a, a tremendous job. He is a uh, senior fellow with the Fraser Institute and has a piece out, COVID-19, hygiene, theater, masks, and lockdowns, solid science, in quotation marks, or science veneer. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Green joins us now. It's uh, good to talk to you again, Kenneth. Thanks for coming back on. Good to be with you. Uh, you know, science is something that is not a one-size-fits-all solution, I, I think. It's a process, and it's one that uh, people will learn from and adapt, and you bring in new evidence, and you revise your hypotheses and conclusions. The scientific process, though, I'd say took a bit of a bludgeoning over the last three years, didn't it? It did. I mean, and, and you put your finger on a very important point, which is uh, people misunderstand what science is. Uh, we talk about the science and and there is no such thing as the science any more than there is the flow of water it's a it's a process right and so it's a process it really what it is it's it's trial and error formalized it's formalized trial and error learning that is you you create a hypothesis you do an experiment you publish it or you repeat it you test it you come to conclusions you publish it somebody else tests that and it, it's a it's an integrated trial and, and error learning but it's not it's not a, a authority, authoritative voice. At any given time, in fact, almost all of the studies that are being done will be wrong, right? They'll be, they will not be repeated and they will not be confirmed. Uh, and so, so when, when people invoke this, this entity of that we're following the science, uh, that's not a thing. That's a, they may construct in their mind what science is at any given moment, but, it, but it's not really a thing. And the thing is, governments, when they, they did this, uh, created a real problem because they, they, they gave people the illusion that there was this fixed body of knowledge where all people, all scientists come together and say, vote and say, this is reality. And that, and and, and that the government was, was just following that. Um, but of course, looking back, if you actually look back at the literature that existed at the time, uh, the, the, the body of scientific literature, which is a real thing, if you looked at that uh, at the time that they were making their decisions to impose masking, to impose social distancing, to impose stay home, stay safe, uh, three months to flatten the curve, you know, three weeks to flatten the curve, three months to flatten the curve, three years to flatten the curve. Um, if you look back at the actual literature that was published at the time, as a group called the Cochrane Library has done uh, formally, um, what you find is there was no evidence that any of those measures would reduce the transmission of COVID or the severity of COVID uh, or the, the duration of COVID um, or which, which parts of the population were affected by COVID. Um, the, the evidence was very, very, uh, very, very weak and, and inconsistent, um, but mo and mostly negative, mostly that it uh, found as a biological common sense would tell you uh, viruses um, are not affected by much. <laughs> viruses are a force of nature. They're like earthquakes and, and tornadoes. It's, 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 it's very difficult for humans to influence a virus that is passing through a population of any kind. 
Uh, and so, um, yeah, so, so, yeah, I think we have a problem with regard to and I, I, the, the issue of how governments portrayed what they were doing with regard to science because they corrupted uh, science. They corrupted people's understanding of science. They corrupted faith or belief in science, that, that science is a good way of knowing. Uh, and I think all that is all dangerous uh, because yeah, science is. Uh, I, my opinion, I'm still I, I'm a scientist. I have to you know have to, to I, I trained in the sciences, like doctorates in environmental science, and I still believe science is the best way of knowing uh, how the world actually works and and empowers us to to make world, the world better, make our uh, better place for the world. When you bring up the trust in science, I, I think that's a key point here is that it, it's not even like in the long run what the government did really helped it. Because I, I think even very dutiful, diligent, otherwise obedient people that wanted to follow whatever Justin Trudeau and Theresa Tam were telling them will start to get suspicious when there can be a complete reversal. Like, I mean, the ones that we've all talked about here are, you know, you don't need masks. Don't worry about the mask. Don't wear masks to everyone wear a mask from, you know, border closures are racist to we have to close the border to, uh, you know, the vaccine will prevent transmission to no, 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 we never said it. Like if they had approached this with a bit more humility and said, we are learning as we go, this is what we think now. And then we changed it because this came up, there would probably be a little bit more forgiveness there, but we didn't hear that. And in fact, the, the efforts that uh, official institutions went to, to block dissent and criticism, which as you indicated, uh, Kenneth, is part of the process, uh, just completely erodes that they were really interested in real science. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think uh, there was actually a breach, uh, a breach in the wall of trust of science as an institution, uh, and particularly the idea of, of scientific medicine. Um, I don't think we'll ever recover, uh, or or the the public health agencies, the the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, U.S. Um, Environment, Can the the health, uh, Canadian health authorities. I don't think they'll recover their reputation because it's what you said, which is at a certain point, you know, there's a saying, which is, oh, they somebody posts something on the, on, on Twitter, uh, Twitter X, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and as people say, they said the quiet part out loud uh, and they shouldn't have done that. And um, which is they revealed their inner truth, which is that the government is not using science. Uh, and this, the, the people on, who were who coming out saying that they were the, the, they were the champions of science. Uh, also, we're stating things that would be would be shown to be, as you said, 180 degrees wrong within such a short period of time that it's undeniable to people that they, you, you point out the window, right? Somebody says it's raining out. You, you, you point out the window, it's not raining. There's a certain point where people can't deny that they're being misled. And I think that's happened. That, that, I think COVID was, was a case in that, um, of that sort where, where the... the the complete turnaround was so obvious, and when they when they were, when they finally resorted to saying, "The science is changing day by day," even people who have no background in the sciences have to understand or know that science, because you have to do experiments, you have to publish them, you have to right do the uh, and and so forth, can't change day by day. Hmm. Just one. One quick question in closing here, Kenneth. I mean, in politics, there's a desire to move beyond this and really not to live in 2020, 2021, 2022, which I, I'm sympathetic to. In science, is there still a bit of lingering curiosity? Have you, have your colleagues in various fields of science thought that, you know, maybe we should go and look back empirically, did this work, did this work? Or have they sort of tried to move on as well? 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not embedded at a university or in the institution of science uh, these days. I'm not in the Which is why you're so reliable. <laughs> but with those of us on the, on the outside tangential side who are, are analysts or, or stu students of what's going on in science certainly uh, think something needs to be done. And, and, and there, are, there are more and more um, polls and, and uh, things coming out showing that people just don't trust uh, the, sci the science anymore. I find that troubling. And, and I, I've said the same thing as you have or, or something similar to what you have, which is until there is some process of reconciliation, some process of admission by the agencies, not just, well, we should have communicated better, uh, which is, is, I think, the highest they've gotten uh, at the U.S. health agencies. Uh, well, we need to communicate more and, and better um, until there is, is actually some sort of a process in which they admit we were making stuff up. We were arbitrary and capricious. We did immense damage to people's lives, literally po probably much more damage than COVID did. Uh, we're fired. <laughs> we're fired. We're, we're leaving. We're leaving this field because we, we, we can't bring anything positive until there is some process of, re of reconciliation um, and the mission of blame. Um, there won't be any healing. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, but, but that, this goes back a long way. This goes uh, to climate change as well, which we've, we've talked about in the past, which is until there's an admission that, that the, the process of, that the interpretation of actual scientific information was corrupted and here's why, and here's how, and here's how we're not going to do this again. You won't get a restoration of trust. Um, yeah, and that's, I think that's all there is to it. Very well said. The uh, essay in the Fraser Institute is COVID-19 hygiene, theater, masks and lockdowns, solid science in uh, air quotes or scare quotes or science veneer. And that is by Dr. Kenneth Green. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on. Always good to be with you. All right. Thanks very much, Kenneth. Have a wonderful rest of the week and weekend. We have been covering over the course of the week on this show and in uh, True North's coverage more broadly, the horrific terror attacks uh, that have been taking place against Israel and against Israelis. And we've been covering the Canadian response to this, both from uh, Canadian officials and also from uh, Canadian communities, both uh, Jewish and non-Jewish. And uh, well, on one hand, I think it is very easy to dismiss this for some of these people that want to have their heads in the sand about the world as just an Israel thing, I would encourage you to look more closely. The uh, attacks that are taking place against Israelis are, if a lot of the uh, rabid anti-Israel and anti-Semitic folks have their way, not going to be limited to Israel at all. Uh, a Hamas official has actually called for a global jihad, in his words, against Jewish people around the world. We have in London, England, schools that have said they will close tomorrow. We've had synagogues that have had to ramp up security. And I've not really heard from the federal government much in the way of very definitive steps that are being taken, uh, that are taking place to protect uh, the Jewish people tomorrow in communities across Canada. Uh, Conservative Party of Canada Deputy Leader and Thornhill MP Melissa Lansman joins me now uh, Melissa, let me just first and foremost say my my thoughts and, and condolences are, are with your community and, and your uh, friends and family through this time. I'm not a Jewish person. I, I'm a great ally of Israel, but I've not had to shoulder this the, the way Jewish people in Canada have. How real are these concerns about tomorrow? Well, look, I, I think they're a big concern from so many members in the, in the community. And first off, I, I should say thank you. And thank you to 
all of those who have reached out who you know don't have to uh, don't have to say the things that they they did but super appreciative of um uh, of of the thoughts and the and the and the prayers certainly for the people uh, on the ground but in our own community there is a heightened sense of uh, of fear and that's exactly what these messages are intended to do um you know when a terrorist leader um calls uh, calls on something like this around the world its intention is to destabilize the normal daily lives of, of Jews living in communities uh, abroad and instill fear in the community. Uh, and that's exactly what it's doing. One of the things that, that is so inspiring whenever uh, Jews are targeted in tax is the resilience of the Jewish people. I mean, this is a community that has survived the Holocaust, has survived numerous uh, attacks on the existence of Israel and continued ones. This is very different than a lot of these uh, stories that have emerged in the last few years, both in death toll and and I think the narrative. And, I, and I'm wondering just in, in general, when you see a lot of the discussions in the media and online about this, what are they missing? Well, look, I, I think depending on which media you're you're looking at, they're missing the point in, in entirely. We have we have media in in Canada that won't use the word uh, terrorist when they talk about uh, Hamas. So, you know, that's that's a complete uh, revision of what is happening here. You have the sick, sadistic terrorist organization committing crimes uh, on women, on children on elderly Holocaust survivors, kidnapping them. We've heard stories and, and frankly seen images that we've never really seen before. You, you almost are, are watching this in real time um, as if you would be on a, on, a, on a body cam if you were interested in that kind of thing. Um, this, is, this is disheartening certainly from the community, uh, for the community and the resilience for, for the community, you're right. Uh, throughout history, biblical history, uh, there is there is instance after instance of uh, of those trying to eradicate the Jewish people, and this genocidal terrorist group is no different. Their goal is one goal, and that's the eradication of Israel and the eradication of Jews around the world. The federal government has, I think, said the right things when it comes to condemning Hamas. Uh, Justin Trudeau and, and your leader, Pierre Polyev, both spoke very eloquently on Monday night. They've been unequivocal that Hamas is a, a terror group. When you look at the efforts that the government has been doing, or I mean, in some cases not been doing to uh, help Canadians in Israel, though, uh, tremendous doublespeak here. I mean, on one hand, we were hearing from the foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, that uh, everything was hunky-dory and that the officials in Tel Aviv were working all through the week. Weekend, and then we find out uh, yesterday that uh, the embassy was in fact closed and, and everything was being handled out of Ottawa. Uh, what's your take on this? I mean, is the government doing enough to help uh, Canadians, just this basic consular role that global affairs is supposed to be providing? Well, look, certainly not. And we've uh, we've we've managed to call and push the government for 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 the people watching. Um, you know, they, they might understand my my the writing that I'm so lucky to represent has the largest number of uh, of Jews anywhere in the country. And any at any given time, um, there are tons who are visiting, studying, um, uh, you know, celebrating something in, in Israel. So the very fact that they would reach out to our office suggests that they're not getting the answers that they need from from government. You know, nobody on the other end of the phone, a uh, an auto standard reply saying, you know, please don't travel to Israel to people who are in Israel saying that the embassy is open, the embassy is closed, uh, call this number, but nobody answers. And when you're in a situation where you are fearful, uh, you you should at the very least 
expect that the government is going to answer the phone. So they were slow off the mark, slow to start. Uh, and finally, finally, uh, after a, a major push, uh, do we have the, the first flights out of, uh, of Canadians wanting to come home? Uh, you mentioned that fear is the goal for Hamas and its supporters. Just, just in closing, Melissa, what's your message to uh, Jewish Canadians, but I'd say all Canadians, for yeah, taking the next few days and weeks? This is all Canadians, and I, I would say, you know, watch, you know, watch who has the courage to stand uh, by their by their conviction. Watch very carefully that the the words that are used, uh, you know, for for those in our in our own community here uh, north of Toronto and in Jewish communities and uh, in other communities across the country, um, you know, stay stay vigilant, and we will make sure that we continue to push on the government uh, to keep Canadians safe wherever they are, whether they are in Canada or they are traveling abroad and want to get home. Uh, Deputy Conservative Leader Melissa Lansman, thank you so much for coming on and uh, try to stay as comfortable and as peaceful as you can in these very difficult times. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. That was Melissa Lansman, the uh, Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party. I, I want to move on and, and take a bit of a different view of this, a, a bigger picture view, if I may on this thing, because oftentimes the people who are very against Israel are against the idea of Israel. They may say, I'm critical of this particular thing the Israeli government has done. And as I've said, that's absolutely a, a fair discussion or criticism. But, but really what they're doing is masking what is at, at its core a contempt and an opposition to the existence of Israel. And, and this is where uh, the term anti-Zionist is often being used as a substitute for anti-Semitic because someone is trying to uh, cloak their genuine beliefs here. And it's amazing how often this is uh, kind of cloaked in human rights language, the language of human rights. No, we're not uh, anti-Semitic. We're just supporting human rights for Palestinians. Well, uh, my next guest knows human rights in an international context very well. Sarah Teach is an international human rights lawyer. She is with the McDonald Laurier Institute. She's also the co-founder and executive director of Human Rights Action Group. Uh, Sarah, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Just let's start there for a moment because we often hear human rights, I think, appropriated by people that have a, a very anti-Israel view. Right. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing come to the fore, especially now, is a lot of human rights defenders are not actually approaching human rights in a principled way. Because if they were, they would be against these human rights violations that Hamas has been committing. And when you talk about that, I mean, we're all seeing these images, which I, I'm not sharing on this program. People that want to can go and look them up. And, and there's a huge amount of denialism. And, and, you know, I bring this into the context of Holocaust history, and we wonder how could anyone deny the Holocaust? Well, look at what people are doing in real time to deny Holocaust atrocities when we have a much more information, data, and photographic evidence in real time than we did about the Holocaust. Right. And we're seeing people deny things that are undeniable at this point. We have videos, we have photos of the crimes. There are photos of tiny corpses and people are still denying like in a widespread manner on social media this that the beheaded babies they're calling that a myth they're calling that false information i'm not even sure how you do that when you have photographic evidence 
one of the distinctions that we often hear is that, okay, you know, you, your, your issue is with Hamas, not with the Palestinian people. And I think there is an important distinction there. Israeli citizens are not the same as IDF soldiers. Hamas militants are not the same as, as individual people in, in Gaza that have nothing to do with this conflict. But, but on both sides, casualties are caught up in this. I mean, you look at Israel's response to Gaza right now, uh, cutting off access to water, electricity. I know that's being criticized by, by human rights activists. And I was wondering what your take on that is. Right. I mean, I think that that's only going to get worse, frankly. And it's it's heartbreaking. It is devastating to see photos of Gaza babies who are innocent being pulled from the rubble. I think what folks need to remember, and I think this is the message that's sort of already getting lost, is that it's Hamas that has responsibility for this. And when calls are coming up for de-escalation by Jolie and others, it's it's almost not taking into consideration that there are still 150 plus hostages in Gaza. There's no it's not possible to de-escalate until Hamas, uh, unless and until Hamas releases those hostages. Well, yeah, and, and I think that de-escalation has become another one of these words that seems to be a, a euphemism now, because when people are, are talking about de-escalation, they're not calling for Hamas de-escalation, because Hamas was the one that escalated, and by that I mean just created this conflict, I mean, in terms of the latest iteration of it with its attack on Saturday, an attack for which it's been quite proud and has uh, talked about expanding and, and doing more of. And I think that's the important part that's also missing is that Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza in 2005. That is a unilateral, that is as de-escalatory as it gets, but has it diffused the conflict? No. No, not at all. And, you know, you see this sort of messaging come out of of pro-Israel accounts and Israel government as well, that when Israel pulled out of Gaza, the Palestinian people in charge at the time, which was not Hamas, right, right away, they had this opportunity to build up Gaza like a modern day Singapore or Dubai, and they've received so much money in international aid. And instead, all that money has been funneled into Hamas leadership. The head of Hamas lives in a villa in Qatar. He's not even there. He lives the life of luxury. And this money is going towards building tunnels, collecting weapons that are then used to attack innocent Israelis. And, you know, there's, again, when you criticize the Israeli blockade, well, what about Egypt, right? There's also a border with Egypt, and Egypt has not let in the Palestinians through their border as well. So there's a lot of misinformation here, a lot of misplaced blame. Uh, and certainly Hamas does not have the best interests of Palestinians at heart. Yeah, and I, I think that's where oftentimes people don't look enough at the other Arab countries that have made their own decisions on this, which, again, domestic considerations play into as well. But uh, they have a similar... I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with my language here, but a lot of Arab countries ha have not done anything to support Palestinian people in, in a humanitarian way, but they love to point the finger at Israel and say that it's the source of all the problems. Right. No one's blaming Egypt for locking down their border. No one. I haven't seen that anywhere. No, and Israel and Egypt, for its part, has has been been kind of instigating in, in its way by saying, oh, yes, we warned Israel and we did this and, and did that. I, moving on from this, I mean, the international community loves to crap on Israel. I mean, it's one of the United Nations favorite pastimes. And at, at a certain point, I mean, what outcome can there be but for Israel to disengage from a lot of these institutions? And I, I think the lack of nuance, I mean, from all the people that like to call for nuance, the lack of nuance they've given about the situation has been quite shocking. Right. I mean, I don't know about disassociating from the institutions. I do still believe that those institutions are important. But certainly Israel cannot listen and will not listen to calls for de-escalation at this time. And if you see that coming out of the EU, the United Nations, when Israel has 150 plus hostages in the territory, 
there's no way that they're listening. And frankly, they shouldn't. Uh, what's I, I mean, no one has the crystal ball here, but if you were to see where this is going to go, I, I mean, Hamas is not showing signs of de-escalating on its part. Israel uh, has to cannot just sit down and say and just let it happen in the interest of a quote unquote de-escalation. Uh, so where does this go? I mean, I don't see a lot of outs here. No, that's the heartbreaking part of this all is that Hamas, because they don't care about their own people. They, I don't see a realistic possibility that they're just going to give back the hostages because frankly, if they did, I think Israel would back right down. I mean, this is what Israel cares about at the end of the day is the hostages and, and Hamas knows this and they're taking advantage of this, right? So if Hamas continues to hold on to the hostages, Israel cannot back down. Israel cannot look away from its people and not try to get those people back. And it's the Palestinian civilians that are going to pay the heavy price. Yeah, very well said. Uh, Sarah Teach is an international human rights lawyer and co-founder of Human Rights Action Group. Sarah, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You know, I, I shared this a little bit at the beginning of the week, and I, I've been, to be honest, trying to find the time and energy and emotional strength to put this all in writing. And I, I'm finally doing it and I'm going to have a newsletter out this afternoon. So if you are subscribed to my Substack, you'll see it. If you're not, you can get subscribed now. It's at andrewlawton.substack.com. But to give you a bit of a primer on this, if you have not gathered in the last three days, Israel is a country that has deep meaning to me and not because of my Jewish faith, although certainly my Christian faith has uh, played a significant role in, in my relationship with Israel, but also my understanding and appreciation for history and for the complexities of the world and for the human story of Israel. I, I was chatting about this with Melissa Lansman a few moments ago. The uh, one recurring theme throughout history is anti-Semitism, but uh, the corollary to that is resilience. Resilience is an absolutely essential and pervasive part of the Jewish story, and I have no doubt whatsoever that Israel will survive this, that the Jewish people will survive it. But uh, it's important to look around and, and see all the people who are not contributing to the attacks on Israel with their rockets or their knives or their guns, but the people who are contributing with their words. And I'm looking at a lot of you that occupy positions of leadership and power in universities and unions in government who are very morally indistinct from Hamas. You may not be violent, but you share the same goal, which is an utter contempt and disdain for the beacon of light in the Middle East. So I'll leave you with that. More of my thoughts coming out on that substack, and we'll have more coverage over the weekend at True North. To the Jewish people watching and listening, Shabbat Shalom. I hope you have a very safe weekend. And to all Canadians, thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.